This recording is brought to you by the Goodness and Kindness Foundation. If you're walking down the street, smile to a stranger, do a good thing for someone else, let's all strive to make our impact in this world order to make the world a better dwelling place for everyone. One small candle can light up a very dark room. So spread as much positivity and kindness with everyone and your surroundings so that way we can make the world a better and happier and healthier place. Hey everyone, I'm super, super excited today to have with us a very, very special guest, a superstar, a rock star, and I am super humbled that he actually agreed to come upon the podcast. Today, we have with us our dear friend, Zohar Alon. Zohar has a phenomenal, phenomenal story, not just about his startup, which we're going to get into, but also about who he is personally and what he does in order to become the best man possible so he can show up in everywhere else in his life. So I am very excited to learn about his habits, what makes him the best person possible, and also how he is the father to six incredible children. And we'll learn, obviously, if he's willing, we'll learn some relationship and parenting tips. But besides that, Zohar has an incredible story of building a company over an eight-year period to a successful exit. And we're going to hear all about that. So Zohar, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you, Efren, for having me. You're welcome. Wow. Where to even begin? Because I have so many questions and you have a phenomenal, phenomenal story. Um, these days, you are known as a very prolific angel investor. You are the person that everyone goes to for advice. You are the person that they take your face, slap it on a banner in Tel Aviv and saying, hey, here's Zohar. Go get him. Go get a startup money. But before you had all this money to start investing in startups, you had a company called Dome 9. And we'll get into the history of Dome 9. But before we get into the full history, I want to start off with you almost shut down your company twice. You had a failed acquisition offer. You were building it for eight years. These days, no one builds for eight years. When you take a second right now and you look back at the history and everything, like what, what comes up? I feel it here when you said that we almost shut it down twice. You know, probably the fact that we could afford to run me and my co-founder, Roy, who is also my cousin. The fact that we had some financial reserves, you know, on the personal level, when I started on nine, I had three kids already. He had uh, just said his newborn. And when you face with a situation where you know that you're not going to take salary, we didn't take today's salaries for sure, but not even the $5,000 a month equivalent. You need to have that cushion. Now, we both spend almost a year kind of in ideation and working before we raise money. So we already burned through quite a bit of money before we even started. But it's a privilege to be in a spot where you know you can go for yet another several months without income. You know, when you're in your 20s, early 30s, your expenses are limited. But, you know, a father of kids, it's different. There are expenses, there's standards of living. There are many things. When you're on the edge, you realize that there are several other edges out there. It's not the last moment. So we took care of the employees. So I always knew that if I needed to shut down, for example, I could tap my investors and go to my own finances to make sure there will be no repercussion or nobody gets hurt from that move. And that's kind of virtual safety nets that need to be lucky to have them allow you to get closer to the edge and get the break that entrepreneurs are known for waiting. You're waiting for the break. You're waiting for things to sort out. And now as an angel investor, you know, I met several angels, true angels with wings and all that really essentially saved us from shutting down completely. 
And kind of combining those abilities or when you can go into your own finances and you can still relentlessly build a business, get more customers and raise money like it's never been better, definitely helped me. You know, I could smile and I could, you know, sometimes even bullshit my way around a situation and to convince the, the one angel that you need to get an extra bit of runway. At the end of the day, we were lucky because, you know, the market got to where we wanted it to be several years earlier. And we are very lucky to survive. We're very lucky to have gotten to a point where we could now prove that our execution skills and our product building and our vision is working. But what happened for us, you know, since the get-go in 2010, 11, and until 2014 was way premature. You know, we were way ahead of the market. But, you know, now when I look back at it, when you go through these things, you learn the value of the dollar. You learn the value of the, the dollar that you bring from a customer. You learn to cherish each and every dollar that you have in your bank account. And then when things kind of started to get better, you remember those scars and those, you know, near-death experiences from a company perspective. And um, I think one of the reasons... We sold when we did, you know, eight years into it. It's a long stretch, but it had all these experiences kind of got us to a point where we were, you know, humble in the success that we got to. Had we waited a year, we probably could have sold all nine for three times the amount we did. But, you know, in retrospect, this was the right decision for us. And, you know, another thing, when you can't raise money early on, you end up with good investors that go with you all the way. And you're lucky to keep a bit more than the company because, you know, investors were not lining up to buy shares from us. So uh, at the end of the day, it was a great experience. I think that entrepreneurs that have gone through or started a company in the last four years may not have had the chance to face, you know, the current market conditions, the fact that the runway is a couple of months long. I had a period of eight months that I was getting $50,000 at the end of each month from my investors to keep me running. I had zero runway, literally zero runway. I'm going to cut you off right there for a second. Because I actually wanted to touch upon that. First of all, that was amazing because there's so many things to do a deep dive in. But specifically that you just mentioned right now, running out of runway, not having the money in the bank. Have you found it better? I mean, because you have both sides where when an entrepreneur can have, let's say, millions of dollars in the bank and he has that cushion. So that cushion does provide that safety an emotional and psychological safety, but it could relax them from taking action. At the opposite end, you would have a founder that doesn't have the money in the bank, right? So he knows that if I don't work hard, this company will shut down. I won't be able to employ my employees. I won't be able to pay their salary. So you have both sides of the coin. You have experienced both of them. The days I remember, like anytime we like close the seed round, we at the end close the B round and you suddenly have, you know, several million dollars in, in the company bank account. You know, you relax for one day, maybe one week from that burden of raising money. But, you know, CEO, Half of his responsibility is to make sure that there's infinite runway. Make it infinite. This is your responsibility. The other half is to manage the company, to make sure that everything runs, that the threats and the things around the corner won't kill us. I think when it's extremely easy to raise money, as it has been over the past four years, I've seen CEOs that are much better than that than I am. But now when things kind of get tougher and you need to essentially look in 
to the things you can actually manage and control other than the money, like managing an executive team, managing a roadmap, managing your co-founders in a sense where they, you know, you're delivering, now they deliver. And growing an executive team as you go from zero to two million to five million to 20 million as we did, those are tasks that you're the only one responsible for them. Because I was busy raising money for, you know, kind of half my brain was trying to raise money all the time. You don't get rest. You're awake in your bed and you're thinking about those existential threats that you're faced. And when we did a round, we did a C round, April 17 for almost $17 million. And after that round, I knew we had essentially infinite runway because we were scrappy. We were lean. We were generating, you know, probably ARR at the time was when we closed the round, it was around $4 million in ARR, grew to seven at the end of uh, 2017. You know that you have a, a running business to operate and you know that there's so much cushion Based on your values, you know, we didn't burn much. We were scrappy. You know, you, you don't buy the cheapest t-shirt that's possible and you don't spend too much time on cutting costs and saving costs. Luckily for us, it happened when we kind of discovered or reached really the inflection point where we could close a six-figure deal in six weeks. But it's so elusive. Like there's so many points in time that we could have taken the wrong turn and we'd been unlucky. lucky. And we wouldn't even gotten to that point. For example, that failed exit attempt end of 2014 that almost bought us off the market for $12 million. And the buyer was the one that took the offer last minute. But when I look at young entrepreneurs today, I think that those who raise money over the last two years, they know it was sunny and now it's gloomy. The weather is not as they used to think. Those that started four or five years earlier, I think for them, they need to work on the transition. They are accustomed to sunny weather, infinite money, and you get better at it, you are generating uh, this, this becomes your, your focus, your profession, anything that money will solve everything at the back, anything that needs to be solved in the back end, that's not the case. I see them now looking inside the company and dealing with things that are you know, less fun than dealing with growth funds. You know, growth funds can pamper you pretty well when you're an entrepreneur with a good company to offer them a stake at. But these days, focusing on making tough choices, dealing with tough situations, especially around personnel, especially around the customer core that you see and you're saying, you know, we're not making enough money with that price, Mr. Salesman. In the heyday, I would have taken this deal because, you know, it has a nice top line, but now we need to worry about bottom line. We need to worry about other things. So go back to the customer and try to get more. And on the other end, the market is not that. Customers themselves, they're more cheap. They are trying to save at all costs. That's why this entrepreneurs that will survive this, let's say, next couple of years with a healthy company, with the values of perseverance, survival, not being too scrappy as we did because, you know, we started before the cyber boom. We started 2010. It was really like ages ago. Nobody knew what the unicorn was back in 2010. So today I can find reason to be optimistic. I've been to the 2000 bubble burst and the six, seven, not so pleasant years that followed in Israel tech for sure, Israeli startups were not selling left and right for hundreds of millions of dollars during that time. And also the 2008 crisis that had three years of not so fun business environment to operate in. Having gone through two recessions, 2000, the dot-com bubble, and having gone through 2008, right? So when you were in 2000, you were an employee at a company, 2008. 
you're still an employee in a company or you're about to start your own company. Um, no, just, uh, I was with my first startup. Your first startup. So, so I, I felt it uh, really close. Okay. Having gone through that, where do you think we're holding right now? And like, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs or the entrepreneurs that you're coaching? First thing that I, that kind of I analyzed or I sensed from, from those recessions is that things will not get better before we forget how better it was. 2021 was an amazing year, a very bubbly year. Now we know. As long as you think that we're going to be back there, it's just around the corner. We're still going to be on the way down. That's how it works. You have to wipe every good memory that people collectively have in their brains. And then we hit the bottom. The market can correct. Some companies can still be very successful, but the, the atmosphere of raising crazy sums of money at crazy multiples for the general population, for the majority of companies, I would say, you know, we are a year into that, at least two more years. And then the ramp up is, is going to be gradual. It's not going to be 2021 all over again. We're going to have three to five to six years of build up where you are sure that everybody forgot how good it was and you start building and probably in the next technological advantage, you know, I don't know what will follow post the, the generative AI period that we are in now. But, you know, there will be some things that will justify maybe quantum computing, that would justify um, optimism all around. And then it will be again, you know, don't try to time where the peak is going to be, but we can experience a few more years of prosperity, as I used to call it, when I remind people of what happened, you know, those were times of prosperity, everything worked. You know, you could hide leaky buckets by just throwing so much more water and money on them that nobody realized they were leaky. And that's not the case now. And I'm going to be over soon. So we take that into account. So what can entrepreneurs do to, I guess, buckle up during this period now? Until we hit that inflection point that we start going back up, a lot of things could happen. What should they be doing? For, for a CEO, you know, I'll call it, you know, do the right thing. Do the right thing, meaning that you're considering a couple of options for your new office. You need to expand. You know, business is growing. And you even have quite a bit of money in the bank. But, you know, the leading by example and taking into account the fact that even if you can afford it, there are times when it doesn't make sense to have a seven-course chef meal every day just because you can afford it. And because you have employees, because those employees are living in an environment, because your customers look at the way you spend money, your customers look at how aware you are of the, the value of the dollars that they entrust in you. And doing the right thing is sometimes, you know, there may be some purchasing people or some HR people or people that organize the welfare for employees over the last three, four years. And they were accustomed to have essentially blank checks all around, just, you know, a good idea, fine. You know, it costs money, who cares? We have plenty of that. Those people will be the ones that need to go through the adjustment. I think that companies that do have a CFO, if I'm the CEO, I'm telling the CFO to tighten it up and take a lot of the responsibility of why we are tightening it up. Because you as a CEO, you want to have some separation from the tactics and you want to be able to overrule in case, you know, things come to you. And it's less pleasant saying no. So if you're a CEO that has hard time or you are much more a person that enables and say yes and solve things with a smile, practice on, on holding it tighter and saying no 
sometimes no not arbitrarily but but sometimes you know you practice it even if you think that if this could be a good example of the the values or the mindset that you want your executives and your employees to have you do that leading by example is always easy it always uh, makes sense i'm also referring to companies that will still grow that will still execute you know people still need technology they still spend a ton of on it and on saas applications or whatever on a cyber or whatever it is so i'm not saying you know don't get back into the bunker and put the shields and have zero interaction with the outside world until the storm passes even if you can afford it think actually execute just by mathematics you're going to have less competitors as time go by because your less prepared competitors your less performing competitors will essentially be bought for cheap or will disappear sometimes you can even buy them you can do a stock deal and buy something if you are a good company or find investors it will give you the cash to make an acquisition or two and leave your eyes open and have a 360 vision on all the opportunities but if the business can grow in this environment and i know many that do just do it You know, I used to work for Checkpoint. Checkpoint acquired my company in 2018. Even at that tough time, you know, between you know 9/11 and 2008, you know, I was an investor. I had some investments there. You know, it wasn't a pleasant time. But one of Checkpoint competitors, NetScreen, was acquired for three billion dollars, almost three billion dollars in 2004. They were executing. They were delivering good products. They were acquired by Juniper in an all-cash deal. in a period where people were really cared less about technology and there was no hype so i'm saying that the good companies in these tough times can actually get now it's a better multipliers compared to 21 but better multipliers compared to what is a custom now in the industry because the scarcity of good asset has grown there are less good assets now there are less shiny assets now because some players have cleared the the stage for you and your shiny startup to can show off your execution show off what you're doing and some requires out there are or even whether it's an exit or it's a round of funding you can still get an obscene multiplier as i like to call them from the intelligent buyers because they also know that when prosperity or the beginning of prosperity is going to come in a couple of years if they'll be well equipped with you know good technology to sell they could conquer considerable portions of an incredible market with that investment and that's where the smart ceos of the public companies the leaders that we are we are seeing or which we know the play in your market have the relationship have the relationship with the core dev have the relationship with the ceos that can potentially invest or acquire you and be ready to or make sure that you tell them how good you're doing on an ongoing basis our exit to checkpoint the seeds for it were planted when i started briefing them about our business progress since 2012 you know at first they they didn't know then they didn't care then it was negligible and then it started to become interesting and then they called me and said okay it's interesting This is again responsibility of the person who needs to provide infinite runway. This is also, you know, what happens at the end of the runway is also your responsibility and you can impact that. You can influence it. A lot of it is based on your telling skills. 
when you sell the strategic story, when you sell the one plus one equals four, that's on you. And that's a game you learn to play. I was very bad at it. And I kind of, with the success or when you break another level in the progress in this game of, I call it monopoly of rich people or, or you know, adult. This is the startup game, you know, like the investors are the rich people. They are playing with some of other people's money. And you are the pawn and every square in the game has a meaning. You know, the first one is you got an investment. You know, if you couldn't convince somebody to give you money, or you couldn't generate revenue with a bootstrap product, you're not on the board. And when you did, you just landed on the first square and you have the hard work of moving, progressing. And as you move, you are getting better. You're getting more, you can sell, you can describe better. You learn how to talk to investors. And this is for me, probably the, the biggest uh, kind of selfish reward when I work with companies I invest in or companies that I'm chairman of is to see those young entrepreneurs, CEOs that are learning to play the game, play it better, understand it. It's a multi-level chess on top of a monopoly board because you know a lot of it is people. People have needs, they have desires, they have their own strategic plans. You know, you require maybe somebody that, you know, has aspirations of having a bigger impact inside that big company already. And sometimes you can be that enabler. You need to assess it. But for that, you need to be out. It doesn't happen when you're in your office in Tel Aviv. You need to be out. You need to touch those people in the trade shows, in the speaking opportunities, in the analyst briefings. I think a lot of things that taught me a lot was once we got to around, you know, like post-R, we called it B-Round, which was literally it's not even A-Round today. But a lot of the analysts that were starting to, uh, the financial analysts, not the Gartner. Gartner, we, we got a cool vendor from Gartner in 2014. It mattered a bit. But when the financial analysts, those who cover you know, the Palo Alto networks, the checkpoints, the Cisco's of the world, the moment they are aware of what you're doing in the market, even, you know, they cover those big monsters and you're a startup with $4 million of ARR. And then you got a call from that analyst that covers those companies. And, you know, this relationship is being built and you are essentially, you are listening to what they're thinking about your niche that can grow and be a, a big market. And, you know, having those relationships, having those conversations teaches you a lot about how they think that the big company CEOs should think or should operate. It's a very, very interesting and fun game, if you will, when you understand the fact that all those elements are part of your potential exit or potential outcome. And that's critical in your success. For me, it, it helped a lot. Were you always entrepreneurial as a kid? And when it comes to fear also, I wouldn't call starting a company being fearless, but were you able to embrace fear, um, to face it head on and like do whatever it was and go against the resistance? I grew up next to a father that ran his own business. He was the boss. That's when I saw I like technology from the get-go. You know, I was attracted to things that interested me. And, and this was, you know, dismantling electronic equipment and trying to rebuild it and, you know, not leaving too many screws and, and components in your hand when you're done reassembling it. I was never really a programmer. I'm lucky that I wasn't. You know, I could have easily gone to that developer part. I probably would have been okay with, with that. Probably would have been slow. 
but you know, I like electronics and I, you know, taking risks. No, I hate to say it, but since I joined the army, my three years of compulsory service and then my extra year of paid service, always generated more money than I spent because the fortunate of dealing with, you know, networking at first. And then I was teaching people how to use Excel. And my dad bought me a car and he took care of my rent in the first year. And you need some, some assistance, but essentially supported myself. So for me, taking risks, I didn't really look at it as risks. I left very good jobs for better jobs. You jump diagonally. You get an opportunity at a better terms, doing something more interesting for a bigger company. And talk about luck. A lot of it is luck. My mother, 96, I was working for her company. I loved what I was doing. I was successful at it. And my mother gave me a snippet of paper saying, you know, these three guys from Ramat Gan, they just went public on their firewall technology. The snippet in a paper, I used to visit my parents every weekend. I lived next to them, so I probably was there more than just every weekend. There was always the mail that was waiting for me and then some paper slips that my mother, you know, her way of influencing or, you know, helping me. And I sent my, my resume to this company called Checkpoint. September of 96, the company just went public, not even worth $200 million. It's a public company profiting $15 million a year. Crazy times in 96. I sent them a, a Word document in Hebrew. And they called me and said, look, we don't have Hebrew office here, so we can't even print it. Can you either send it in English or, you know, fax it to us? So I rewrote it in English and resend it. And then uh, Marius, one of the founders, gave me a call, went through some grueling interview series. People that are to this day in the company interviewed me and started a wonderful almost seven years of pure fun. I was 26. And, you know, we were winning the world. We were inventing things. We were doing things that nobody had done before. In the Israeli high-tech scene, that wasn't really existing. It was like, I think, Skytex and some companies selling education software. Nobody sold enterprise software, real enterprise software, and definitely not cyber or networking or technology, general technology stuff as we did. And, you know, that paper's clip that my mother kept for me changed my life. You know, altered the course of my life thousand percent. So what have you learned um, when you joined Checkpoint? You know, it was only 200 million, the cap was 200 million. I'm not sure how many employees they had, maybe 100. I was in, in Israel, there was 55. I was employee number 55. There were about not even 20 in the US and three more internationally. So under 100 employees. Under 100 employees. Checkpoint today is billions and billions and billions of dollars, thousands of employees. You've seen the company scale. You've been there for seven years. What have you learned from that period of time that you think A, is still relevant to today? What are the things that you've learned from the CEO who you worked with closely that you've been able to implement into your own startups and to the companies that you coach today too? A great question. So look, because all of us, we, we didn't know what we were doing. Only in Checkpoint in the US, there were some people that had history at Cisco was not a huge monster, but there was some networking equipment companies that we had a couple of execs from and a couple of salespeople. But in Israel, we were 100% clueless, zero experience. 
Most of the R&D were straight out of 8200 and some marketing, some basic functions. And we were just, you know, make it work in the first try. So, so we did. It wasn't that smooth. You know, we did a lot of trial and error. But, you know, when you're honest with yourself, actually trial and error is good. You know, if you're honest, this is an error. Let's do something else. You know, if you don't try to compound on the error, you can uh, actually achieve great things. 96 to 2000, we didn't have a time to even think. Seriously, I always work to say what's on my mind. I realize that I know a thing or two and I have kind of an understanding of what we're selling, how we should sell it, you know, the things that are working and not working. I was the foreign minister. I was the one that's doing, you know, most of the travel, you know, internationally for sure, you know, meeting all customers, doing crazy meetings, saving of the of a small suitcase and sitting in the back row of every airplane you can imagine and enjoying it tremendously. So I wanted to speak my mind. I made sure that if I have an idea, there's something broken that I see that we are repeating, that uh, broken motion. I spoke my mind. And, you know, when you report to one of the founders, and I'm not a shy guy, so I'm, you know, stepping and tell them, this is broken. We need to fix this. I remember when the stock started climbing in 99, I left to his office and said, Marius, we are... The company is now worth a billion dollars. And a couple of months later, I stepped in and said, Marius, you're a billionaire. He didn't even know it. He didn't care. It's like, you know, that it was this kind of that openness and that being able to speak your mind. And sometimes you get, you get slapped back, which is, you know, tough love, you know, like, okay, we heard you once, but shut up. I'm not the kind that, that really shut up. But that's how I got kind of one of my breaks inside checkpoint was that I spoke about something that we I'm showing in the presentations when I'm doing my evangelizing and selling and dealing with the most prolific customers. And said two years I'm selling that slide and there's not zero progress on the product. And two months later I was handed a product and said, well, go build it. Don't just say, you know complain, go build. I said, fine, you know, why didn't you call me? Why did you wait two months? And this was like the first time where I had the opportunity to deliver on my vision as a product owner inside Checkpoint and the sense of creating a product from scratch. In an environment where there's plenty of smart people around you, you think you're very smart, you know, you're arrogant and all that, but you can get to Checkpoint and you meet some tough competition, right? And, you know, to come with the idea of a product, price it, name it, deliver it to market, dealing with the fact that six months we sold zero because everybody said it's too expensive and you hold the fort and you say, no, 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 guys, if you learn how to sell on its value, it will be cheap. And then one sales guy gets it. And, you know, I love him like my brother to this day, those things you don't forget. This was 98, you know, 25 years ago. Uh, I, I remember the moment where I got the first PO, $80,000 on the first provider, one product. And then the floodgates opened and, you know, we were selling like crazy. And then you realize you, you learn a lot in the process. And I'm freaking lucky. I'm, I'm so lucky to have been able to be in those positions. And, you know, when you think about the giving back and, you know, what I can do to tell, to teach people, what they need to be in order to kind of take the full potential of their managerial skills, product skills, development skills. It's a big responsibility. I'm trying to, to do it the best I can. And a lot of what I'm doing today is try to support as much as possible 
I have entrepreneurs that I'm helping. I'm not even an advisor in the company. I don't have shares. I don't expect anything. I think this is my, again, we're very fortunate to be put in this position where we can impact people and hopefully they'll impact, you know, their companies and many, many other lives. I wish I could, you know, be more impactful in education, but it's hard for me. This is like my kind of path to, through around education, or maybe I'll do it. I'm still young. Maybe in a couple of years, I'll figure out this would be the best use of my energy and skills. Who knows? Yeah, become a professor. You're a great, great teacher, professor in entrepreneurship. There's so many questions, obviously. Right? We could go into so many different things because like, you have like a, I love it. You have a talking point about every single thing and it's amazing, you know, and there's a lot to learn from you. And we, we still didn't even touch upon like, you know, the beginning history of, of Dome 9, of, of what it was like. But I wanted to talk about some other aspects before we get into that thing, but some basic stuff. How do you deal with failure? Or even now, setbacks in life, in, in business, how do you handle this? When I joined the, the army, I had many options. But once you are being uh, identified as a potential for the Israeli Air Force, like every other the elite units and 8200, everything is put to the side, you know. When, and I was, you know, from you know, 11th grade, like when I was you know, 16 and a half, 17, I was uh, started my path to become a pilot in the Israeli Air Force. It consumed me in a way that I, you know, I was geared. I was, you know, loving electronics, finished my high school with good scores and all that. But, you know, you're being pulled into this or pushed into this point where you're going to join the Army, start in the Israeli Air Force, and start a two-year pilot school and that was supposed to be my path. And two weeks into the army, after 500 of us, I got kicked out of the Israeli Air Force pilot school. And this was after a grueling two weeks of, you don't have a moment to sleep, you don't have a moment to, it's a nightmare. I wasn't prepared in retrospect, not even 18 at now or 18 and change. And wow, the failure or the, the humiliation and the sense of failure in that, wow, a year and a half, that's all you're geared to. And boom, in the beginning, yeah, you qualified. But, you know, in the first line from this 500, I think not even 30 finish. The, the failure is built in, but to get kicked out in the first stage was uh, and I physically, I was torn after I, I was like, you remember that gloomy bus ride from the Israeli Air Force Base in, in the desert back to the sorting facility where they find you another job to do in the army? Uh, wow, I remember myself. And I think those experiences, you know, what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. What kills you makes your mother strong. Those failure experiences they stay there they sting but they build you they build you because now i know to be prepared i know to be better you know have reconnaissance of where i'm going and you know sometimes you don't want something and that's why you don't prepare for it that's fine but i really wanted it i really wanted it. this was you know i had failures in my life since but that point in time for a young soul kind of that that and I still, I still remember it vividly. Oh, it's uh, strange. Yes, that's that's about that. Um, cherish the the good moments. We definitely have to send you to a therapy session to really re get through. <laughs> no, it's uh, just it's just there. You know, it's just there. You know, I had a yeah. great. I think I made great lemonade out of this lemon. I had a great service doing electronics engineering and then some computer science 
in the Israeli Air Force. I stayed in the Israeli Air Force. I did the, the four years, not the three years service. I was a boss. I managed a team of, of electricians doing a, an incredibly interesting job and meaningful one. And I think meaning is the something that we find meaning with the stuff you do. My entire life would have looked completely different. Ted and I have been kicked out of the Israeli Air Force so early. So I'm thankful for them because I know where I am now, how lucky I feel. So that's part of the luck building, you know. Part of it was to to be diverted. Sometimes other people decide for you or the, the universe decides for you. Like, yeah, this is real hashkacha. I mean, the fact there's a bigger, better plan for you, like you mentioned. But I want to ask you, you know, to put it plainly, you're rich, right? You're rich, you sold your company, you have money. Baruch Hashem, you have a beautiful family. What gives you meaning today? First of all, the family. You know, as you said, I have six kids. I have two older daughters. One finished the army. One is uh, actually she now teaches pilots. So I have redemption to my second uh, daughter. Two teenagers and two, a toddler and a baby. So I'm three girls, three boys. So, so perfect mix. Living the life in Tel Aviv, enjoying it. Again, like stupidly lucky. Don't uh, don't get me wrong. But, you know, when I see my CEOs improve, make impact, and I see my daughters progress, that's what kind of fills me back with energy. Obviously, I have a great wife that supports me through this experience and through this company building. A lot of it is hers, not just mine, because of the peace of mind and the logistical support that you need to do all that, to relocate when you have kids and all that mess of the life of an Israeli CEO that has people in California working for him. It's not that exciting. A lot of it is ugly. A lot of it is midnight Tel Aviv time, 2 p.m. California. You have some sales guy needs your help and you need to be available. And it's not work-life balance bullshit. When you're the CEO, you are needed. When you don't have too many people at your disposal because you're running a tight ship, then some of it is on you. And so the fact that you, you can be available to your company and there's support. And when you're flying off a suitcase, a CEO of startups, I used to be in California on average every six weeks. It's a week of your life that kind of vanishes through, you know, plane rides to Frankfurt, Frankfurt, San Francisco, a week in San Francisco, Thursday night fly back and sometimes Friday night fly back and you have no weekend, all that jet lag. And there's a lot of it. I think COVID changed some things. You know, people can be more stationary. Zoom changed things. You can have a meaningful phone conversation transatlantic, but when you are touching people that whether it's your executives, your potential customers or potential investors or acquirers, you know, the value face-to-face is just going to go up compared to what it was in COVID. You know, it's funny, you just mentioned about the aspect of constantly flying around, being on calls at midnight. People glorify being a founder, being a CEO. People are like, wow, the high flying and people, what they imagine, they imagine that. So when people think of, let's say, for example, Zora Lon, they see Zora Lon in 2023 sitting by his desk, relaxing, chilling, and they don't see all the scars and all the things that happened previously. That They don't see that. We see now, right? But really, you're a 15-year success, a 15-year overnight success story. Yeah, the, the harder you practice, the luckier you get, right? It's a long time into the making. It's not the one thing. But the point of having, how do you say, those scars, those battle scars that you have, you know, if they don't kill you, they will make you better. It's not a cliche or it's not it's just a saying. 
it is you come to the next battle with another tool in your in your toolbox and you're fighting you know you're fighting with your competitor that wants the same attention from a potential investor acquirer or partner and you have yet another tool so you can you can utilize it you should utilize that but it's very lonely it is very lonely especially in the tough times it's not just everything is on you sometimes it won't be worthwhile to share with your co-founders you know how bad it is because maybe they have less ways of dealing with it they could, could cripple them completely it could you know throw them off to depression or whatever it is and it's your responsibility to manage that and what I did was I made sure I have a very strong board of directors very small you know, I had I had a board most of the time it was three person board myself and two investors or myself an investor and, and my chairman who was also an investor like I really worked so my co-founders would not be a part of the board because you know he's a CTO he's a the best R&D guy I could have hoped for amazing partner but if I have to brief him on the levels of shit that we are facing it would have impact execution and those Two people, one of them is Dan Avida, who did the seed round. The other one is Avery Moore, who did the essentially the A round with Dome 9. They worked with me all the way through those tough times, through a moment in early to January 2017, where I'm already, you know, $2 million of ARR in discussions with this investor on $25 million C round investment. And then my biggest customers calls me and the procurement guy calls and says, and they were accounted for 30% of our revenue and tells me that they're not going to renew and your world collapses. Yeah, I have the plan A, B, C are already, and they were using the product. It wasn't a churn that had real, that something we could have forecasted or understood in advance. It was only in retrospect, we realized how much it wasn't our fault. It was extremely external and a lot of it was political over our head. So this was a, almost a $700,000 a year customer, about 30% of our revenue at the time. And you need to explain to this investor that just gave me a term sheet for $25 million that you just lost a third of your business. And after you convinced him for a couple of months that your customers are very sticky, it's hard for them to uninstall you or, or not use your solution. And then the many arguments that you've built are collapsing in your eyes. And I already said no to the other funds because we said effectively we had the sign term sheet. How you negotiate your way around that situation. That's at the poker game that you play with that investor to get them back to the table and how you mitigate that, you know, your marquee customer is telling you that he'll need to leave you in soon. Um, so I was prepared. I knew I had plan B and C already. You compiled them very quickly. And to some, some reason, I may have anticipated that because they were not communicative, not because of us. They had some internal, big internal issues that I only found that in retrospect. But at the moment, you think it's because of you, you know, they, they hate you. They're going to churn. That's why they don't communicate, but use the product so well. And none of our competitors had that functionality that they were using. And then, you know, this is your task in saving the day. And um, I'm happy to say that, you know, we were successful. It was a trans-specific call. And the investor wanted to cut the deal in half. And it would be very, very gloomy, like half the valuation, half the money, same equity for half the money, essentially. And I remember going to the call with them after we got the call between them and the customer that, that we were churning to explain to them it's not us, it's internal and all that bullshit. I don't know how much they bought. It was true, but you know, it sounds bullshit, right? And I remember that trans-Pacific conversation and my chairman was with me in the room and 
you know, I, I was on the, it was a phone, not even a, a Skype call or Zoom was not, maybe Zoom was there already, but yeah. And I remember saying, look, the only deal my board will approve is XYZ. Now remember the, they're going for mute for like minute and a half, you know, no static in the line. Mike it was muted on the other end and then they unmute. Okay, you've got it wrong. And my chairman looks at me every and said, you just played poker and you, you bluffed and you won the hand. You won, you know, in retrospect, everybody were extremely happy, but you realize that there are certain things that prepare you. There are skills that you build. But the point I'm saying is that him being with me in the room and having his support in even the way I presented things. And I looked at him and I saw a reassurance. I saw his support in his, in his look. So today I make sure not to do anything without him and his investor in all the companies I'm involved with. But I try to be that kind of mentor in my presence, in my guidance, in my, because some Sometimes you're clueless. Sometimes you're doing, you're taking a decision in an area that you, you know, you're sitting in a crossroad. You can go straight, right, or left. And if you take the wrong pick and two of the three are wrong, it's going to cost you a lot to pedal back. And to be with them when they are, you know, analyzing the situation, managing, handling it, sometimes, you know, backtracking if needed, that's kind of what I'm trying to, you know, making sure that. I would be that, you know, slap on the wrist when needed, but that supporting hug and reassurance in the look saying, okay, you're on the right track. Go, go. I trust you. And, you know, because, you know, it's, it's a game, it's a very privileged game to play. You know, we are playing for the right to be essentially, to be impactful, to have access to resource, to be rich and all. I wish, you know, we were not in the cyber or cloud space so we can do some real impact. If there are entrepreneurs that are seeing this and listening, I can be impactful in my skills in building, you know, cloud, cyber, enterprise software in general. I can probably be a good investor also in other realms, but I have to learn more. And I like to learn. That's probably what I know. I know how to learn and it's helps me, but, you know, trying to focus my efforts now, but it is a huge privilege to be in that spot where you are dealing with good uh, or, or dealing with young entrepreneurs that try to do crazy things. What has been the nicest thing that someone has done to you um, during building a company or I guess in general? You know, when people help you genuinely without expecting anything in return. And if you know how to ask with a smile, you'll be surprised how many things people are willing to. You know, introductions to investors that comes with a nice word. Uh, whether it works out or no, a lot of people are doing good as a philosophy. And you, know, you cherish them. You remember them over time. If you can, you know, sometimes it's hard to give back on a nice intro that somebody did that he wouldn't, uh, he initiated it. He thought it would be interesting if you meet this and that, and it ended up being something dramatic. But, you know, my two long careers, one in Dome 9 and the one before at Checkpoint, at the end of the day, you are with those people for a long time. It's a real family. You know, we grew Dome 9 to 110 employees. And when we essentially decided to sell to Checkpoint, so for me, it was back home. And you are in that moment, uh, you know, try to remember all the people that helped you along the way. Sometimes, you know, it's just a nice bottle of wine or a donation on their name or like something to make them realize or remember that you remember their contribution along the way and it doesn't have to be money it can be just the fact that you remembered of that great intro or that support when it was tough 
It's amazing. Like you never know where anything can lead to in an introduction. Just like that. But the fact they have like the real gratitude to recognize that the appreciation is, is such an important, important thing. So like moving forward, then you've had the opportunity to learn from some of the best. The founders of Checkpoint. Um, I'm sure you've come in contact with other incredible entrepreneurs along the way. What have you seen from the most successful founders that they have either in their personality or in their work ethic or something? They're able to say like, these are the things that actually make them successful. I can definitely think about, you know, the new batch of entrepreneurs that I'm seeing, you know, that, you know, some of the second timers that are, you know, building companies after a successful exit or sometimes even two. And you see it in the smile, you see it in the calmness, in the, in the understanding that, you know, we are in, in a great market in technology. It's not a winner takes all. If you do some right, you will find an audience, you'll find a market, you will find financial success and your employees will could have a life-changing financial experience as you already had. And you're doing much less for the financial impact, but for the entrepreneurship is independence. Entrepreneurship is your way of being independent, having no one telling you what to do and having the liberty to decide on this organ, which is the company or your R&D department or whatever you are as, as a founder. And it, it's a privilege to, to be in that spot to do such a thing. And I think I see with the second timers that they just, you know, enjoy themselves tremendously. They're much more honest. They can accept failures. I've seen, seen great pivots that great entrepreneurs did that I think for first times, it would be much harder for them to do because of the and like essentially, uh, you know, uh, admitting defeat. No, you're not admitting defeat. You are embracing defeat to reinvent yourself. And you do it so much quicker that you don't waste energy. And this is the, the ability to navigate with open eyes and steer to the direction that you essentially you, you lost conviction of and move to a place where you find new conviction. And those entrepreneurs are, I think all of us are extremely accessible. Now, people are way more accessible than you think. You know, not one degree of freedom today. It's very easy to get to anyone with an intro and sometimes even without. I had some people, you know, cold call me on Twitter and say like, you know, I have an idea for this company. Do you want to listen? And I, you know, if they do it in their in the right way and my time permits it, I'm doing it. So smiling and being accessible and knowing that you are in it to enjoy the ride. The exit is not the target. The target is or the the objective is to accomplish to have the sense of accomplishment each and every day and you know a lot of it is it's very selfish when you are touching a hundred people it can feel in that sense of purpose some of us are looking for all of us are looking for problems and one of the ways to achieve it is that you know that you have a, a team of a hundred or a team of a thousand people that look up to you because you're the leader and because what you are doing impacts them and they are the critics of what you're doing because you are actually impacting their well-being and their career and their financials and their, you know, just the fact that they are, you know, whether they are happy or not in doing what they do. Again, it's a privilege to be in the spot where you can be. So I think that today execution gets better. We can do much greater things out of Israel. You don't need to cross the, the pond anymore. You don't need to relocate yourself in order to be extremely successful. You can also be here. And that's the way I see it. Who has been the most influential person or influential people in your life? I'm over 50 now, so it's, uh, 
But, you know, probably my parents in so many ways. I was their firstborn. I was the oldest grandson in, in my mother's side of the family. So you're the guinea pig. Yeah, I, was, I was celebrated in, in many ways. Uh, yeah, I visited my parents today, this morning. It's an ordinary weekday. And I'm saying like, uh, I was next to them. It was 10 a.m. I called them and I came up to visit. They are definitely have impacted me. Sometimes I resisted that. When my mother used to keep too many paper clips, I kind of resented her. Like I said, you grew up saying that she's trying to, to manipulate me. Uh, no, no, oh, was that, she, was she that paper us. clip that uh, made a difference? No, that's, that's what I'm saying. She, she deserves, you know, I'm saying how, how subtle, how those subtle things. And, uh, you know, we are judging ourselves as parents on the other hand. So, you know, uh, trying to generate some purpose and impact my kids are doing, you know, giving back, contributing, getting out of the selfish mode or getting out of their computer screen. Or even when they are, let's try to do things better. You know, a lot of work in progress, uh, a lot of work in progress. You know, Dan and Avery, my investors, definitely had. You go to tough times with them, you understand. And many, many others along the way that were part of my career building and my personal life. And my co-founder, which was, you know, I had the idea of, of Dome 9 in my previous startup. One of our servers got hacked and I kind of saw, okay, this is what could have prevented it. I wrote the deck. I have the, the, the PowerPoint until this day. And I sent it a couple of years passed by. And I sent it to Roy, my co-founder. He just finished the job as a CTO and VP of R&D of this company doing real-time surveillance and some big data and stuff like real uh, tasks before the cloud days. And uh, Roy called me. He was here in my office yesterday. We talked about it a bit. He called me. He ordered some books in Amazon. He wasn't familiar with too much on the you know network security and all that. And he called me like not even three months later. Said, "Look, I have a, almost a prototype to show you. Come, come over. That's it." And that's how it started. So, like you know, I came up with the idea. He came up with the execution and with the ability to to do it in the vision. And we took the exit decision together, him and me. You know, it was for us to decide. Our investor told us, look, it was Checkpoint they offered to acquire us for $200 million in um, 2018. We sit just the two of us and we, we do the pros and cons. And this is after we negotiated them up to that price. They started way low. Uh, so we had this conversation. Okay, they got to our price. We asked for that number for quite some time and they finally got there. And, you know, we did the SWOT analysis. Not really, but, you know, we, what could risk it? We didn't even do like how much each and every one of us was going to make out of it. This wasn't the issue. The issue is, are you, you know, not throwing the towel because we didn't quit. We didn't give up. But is from a risk perspective, you know, now that we got the price that we asked for, what would be the right decision? And uh, we committed to it and we did it. And it was, you know, impactful for both of us, for the team. I'm happy to say that Checkpoint are, are very happy with the acquisition, you know, now four years after the acquisition. Dome 9 is uh, the core part of Checkpoint's cloud security offering, selling well over well over 100 million from what I've heard. And yeah, we could have taken it on our own and be part of that. You know, we invented the CSPM space, which is now uh, over a billion dollar market and, you know, some uh, plenty of unicorns in that market as well. But for us, remember the history and almost going bankrupt twice and, and dealing with so much, so many, uh, uh, some grief along the way and, and a lot of tough times and a lot of gray hair. I'm still 
in retrospect, we did the right thing. It was correct for us. It was correct for the company, the right thing for the company. And again, extremely lucky. So what message will we tell a, a young czar, a young boy that's, you know, post-army, post-college, university, that can essentially do anything that he wants? He has a whole entire world in front of him. So I'll, I'll start before, before college. I think that one thing that kind of helped me was, you know, I enjoyed what I do. I enjoyed what I studied. I enjoyed my hobbies and I essentially made sure that if I, somebody will pay me to do work in, in an area that I enjoy, it's a real, real life hack. I studied electronics in a class with 40 boys, you know, not a single girl in class just because, you know, girls didn't care about electronics when they're 14 year old. Definitely that was the case in the, the suburb of Tel Aviv that I grew up in. And you need to have a lot of passion to stick to it because you know, going through your incredible years as a teenager, but I, I liked it. I liked it. I had extracurricular activities. I was in a youth movement, so I had interaction with the other sex as a growing up man, but I loved what I did. And in the army, I loved what I did. And I studied economics and management and I loved it. So I'm maybe I'm, you know, lucky, stupid. I don't know how you want to call it, but I have to, you know, this is something you can control. You can control and if you make a mistake, you know, after a semester, you know, cut your losses, find something that you love because you're going to do it for quite some time. You know, there was a lot of peer pressure, a lot of, we started 40 boys at ninth grade in the studying electronics in, in this uh, school. We finished not even 26, I think. Not even, maybe 25. So 15 boys find that, you know, they should better, you know, go, go and, uh, study something else. They couldn't care about, you know, electronics, technology at that time. It was the right thing for them. But there was a lot of pressure on me to kind of quit that, come to the other school where all the girls are. And I, I held up. And, you know, I had my parents to support me in a sense saying, you know, like, we don't intervene. Whatever you, you feel that it makes sense for you, do it. Yeah. And so do what you love. Do something that you have passion for. There's so many things to do. And I wish I could say, you know, get rid i think that today we're, we're much less managed by you know kind of standards you know you go this you go to university and you know i think the things that were standards or or common agreement uh, in society or in the environment i grew up with in uh, today people are much more they feel much less bounded by it gives them more options, right? But use, use your options wisely, but, you know, definitely don't cave into the things that try to be, create order in the universe and ask you to do things because you're supposed to do them. You're not supposed to do anything. You're supposed to do whatever the hell you like and do it. And yeah, you need to grow up. You need to support yourself. It's zero, effectively zero unemployment in both Israel and the U.S. for the last couple of years. You know, if you want to get on a side, we're going to get the... You know, some income you can do, you know, whatever you want. So right. no excuses. No right. excuses not doing those things you love. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, I could totally attest. I mean, you know, I love podcasting. I absolutely love it. I love connecting with people, hearing stories. I mean, I can't believe it's almost it's almost two hours soon. <laughs> I feel like and I feel like we haven't even even touched the, the surface yet. You know, that's the surface. But um, I'm going to be respectful of your time. I know you have six kids waiting for you at home. Uh, they're waiting for <laughs> But we're definitely going to have to do it in round two because I, I want to thank you. I've learned so, so much from this conversation. Um, you know what I love the most? I love the most because I give you a prompt and you have a, 
you're able to go on a whole entire yeah, and <laughs> run with it. So there's yeah. so much, there's so much knowledge that you have. And eventually, you know, you and me, we're going to work on a book together and sharing your, your story and not just sharing your story, but the lessons you've learned along the whole entire path. I should have, I should have, you know, the stories I had in my head, I could probably find them. I'm actually getting the sense that my memory is better as I, as I age, but you know, we should have written a real story about Checkpoint, a real one. There's so many key details. There's so many things in that amazing history that is now the base of so many things that are happening here. It would not have been like that without Checkpoint. Yeah. Would not. So you know what? We're going to have to do an interview with the founder of Checkpoint. That's a, got to get it. Absolutely. He's, he's a shy guy, but yeah, you, you can get, you can get to him. Put me in touch with him. I'm, I'll make it, make it, will make it happen. Absolutely. But, Wow. Zora, I want to thank you. I mean, this has been absolutely incredible. And I know I know, we're going to be in touch for a very, very long time. God willing, we do many, many good things together. Amen. But thank you so, so much. Thank you very much, Ephraim. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and you're able to take something out to apply to your personal or professional life today. Remember, the mission of the Founder Stories podcast is to provide to you with the most incredible conversations possible so you can get inspired. Now, before you go, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review because when you leave a review, you are doing your part in helping other people come across and find this podcast. Now, if you have any suggestions, ideas, or feedback, or anything else you'd like to tell me about this show, please email me at afrayim at 1000hires.com or find me on LinkedIn at Afrayim Yarmak. I very much look forward to hearing from you And I hope you have an awesome, awesome week.